first up we have uh, Professor Tony Cody from the University of Melbourne. Um, Tony is Vice Chancellor's Fellow and Professor of a Fellow in the Department of Philosophy and the Centre for Applied Philosophy and Public Ethics. Speaking on the enhancement debate, trusting emotion or trusting reason, a false dichotomy. Good, thank you very much, uh, Mark. Um, I have this, uh, this persistent nervous tick of beginning most of my talks with apologies uh, for one thing or other, uh, often for the talk itself, um, sometimes for other things. Uh, one is I must apologise on Mark's behalf because I'm no longer Vice-Chancellor's Fellow, uh, but that's probably on the website or something. This was an appointment which I managed to stretch it for about five years. Uh, it was just a one-year appointment, but you could break it up into bits. Uh, and when I asked them, could I break the last bit into point one rather than point two, uh, they jibbed at it. Uh, that was the final straw. So I'm no longer uh, occupying that lofty position. Um, the other thing is that uh, my guess is there are some non-philosophers here. Could you raise your hands if you're not a philosopher? Don't feel any shame. I increasingly, I increasingly think that it's a increasingly think that it's a badge of honour, actually, uh, not to be a philosopher, so uh, uh, that's just helpful to me, because I mentioned a couple of things that are well known in uh, philosophical literature that I'll uh, uh, have to briefly explain in that case, um, very briefly. And, and the other apology, I'm just going to read this, because I've, uh, landing in Oxford, I always finish up getting stuck with more jobs than I ever anticipated, and there are various other things been piling up on me, and I was going to make this into a uh, you know, a PowerPoint or something, but it didn't happen, so bad luck. Uh, <laughs> well, it's sometimes claimed that one of the divergence, divergences between so-called liberal proponents of human enhancement and the conservative proponents of the project is that the conservatives, so-called, or at least that group of them whose objections are roughly speaking inherent rather than prudential, rely upon emotion, whereas their opponents uh, rely upon reason. This claim often explicitly or implicitly uh, takes it that the two human faculties are opposed and that the appeal to emotion is somehow illicit. What I want to do today is to begin a discussion of the relation between emotion and reason and to argue that any such derogatory opposition is oversimplified and dubiously helpful. There is indeed a tradition in Western thought and elsewhere too to the effect that there are two distinct and even warring elements in our conscious makeup. On the one hand, there's reason, and on the other, emotion. Reason is pictured as pure, cool, higher, authoritative, and ideally regulative, whereas emotion is seen as tainted, turbulent, lower, and in need of control. Some of this opposition is linked to a mind-body dualism, though the link is not inevitable, since it depends on what's included within mind or body. Some of it arises from philosophical traditions, some of it from religious ones. On the philosophical side, one might cite Plato's image in the Phaedrus of the charioteer of reason ruling the two galloping horses of the passions. Admittedly, Plato has one of the horses, the white one, represent good emotions, even though they must be under control of the emotionless reason. Certain aspects of Stoic thought also contributed to the picture, since they described most of what we would call emotions, uh, plus some other affective states, as involving inherently false judgments that needed to be corrected by reason. On the religious side, the strand of Christianity that opposes the flesh to the spirit sometimes includes rather a lot of human emotional orientations within the category of flesh that need to be subdued by the spirit. Paul's letter to the Galatians with its, with its dictum that, quote, the desires of the flesh are against the spirit 
and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh has been influential here. Much modern use of the term Puritanism refers in part to the emphasis on stern control of the unruly passions by a directive rationality, though uninformed by God's revelation. It's also significant and has been stressed by many feminist philosophers, amongst whom uh, most influentially has been the Australian Jenny Lloyd, that there's a gendered history of the use of reason, capital R, to mark off men from women and accord the former a superior position because women are dominated by emotions in a way that's not characteristic of the man of reason, as she calls him. We might for convenience, but with awareness of the looseness involved, call this reason tradition rationalism, and of course it contrasts with other intellectual traditions, notably that of romanticism. I've mentioned the feminist critique of the masculizing of reason, and this sometimes leads such theorists to stress the significance of emotions in the hierarchy of human characteristics. In the area of ethics, this is connected with the advocacy of an ethics of caring as a counterweight to rationalistic ethics. I now turn to neuroscience. A new development beyond philosophy has cast a different sort of light on the reason-emotion divide. This is the development within the discipline of cognitive science or neuroscience of an account of the brain's functions that shows or purports to show various things about the relations of emotion and reason in thinking and especially in moral thinking and deciding. A significant moment in this development was, was Damasio's book, Descartes' Error, Emotion, Reason and the Human Brain, which began in the introduction by stating as follows, quote, I had been advised early in life that sound decisions came from a cool head, that emotions and reasons did not mix any more than oil and water. I had grown up accustomed to thinking that the mechanisms of reason existed in a separate province of the mind, where emotions should not be allowed to intrude. And when I thought of the brain behind that mind, I envisaged, envisaged separate neural systems for reason and emotion." Unquote. But this picture was destroyed for Damasio when he studied the history of Phineas P. Gage, whose life had been transformed in 1848 by a horrible accident when an explosion drove an iron rod 43 inches long and one and a quarter inches thick, just think of that, weighing over 13 pounds straight through his brain and landing a good 100 feet away covered in blood and brain. Contrary to every expectation, Gage was not killed. Indeed, shortly after the accident, he was capable of describing it and its aftermath calmly in great detail to a doctor who attended him and found him perfectly rational." Unquote. But Gage's subsequent history showed that although his capacity for logical reasoning was unimpaired, his character and the emotional resources that had made him a highly respected and capable human being were dreadfully damaged. Reasoning about what to do, how to res his reasoning about what to do, how to respond to others, and how to shape his life was dramatically impaired. He could not sustain work, became dissolute and unreliable, exhibited himself in a freak circus, and died at the age of 38. Damasio and his colleagues managed to find out a surprising amount about the type of damage to Gage's brain and the likely source of the impairments that dogged the rest of his life. Taking hints from that, Damasio conducted numerous contemporary investigations of brain damage that confirmed his dawning conviction that, quote, reason may not be as pure as most of us think it is or wish it were, and that emotions and feelings may not be intruders in the bastion of reason at all, they may be enmeshed in its networks for worse or for better, and for better. 
Well, this is not the place for a resume of Damasio's empirical uh, studies and conclusions, impressive and stimulating as they are, and I strongly recommend the book to those who don't know it. I cite his work merely to illustrate an interesting shift in the traditional separation of reason and emotion that I began by outlining. Other recent studies have concentrated upon the ways in which in practice our thinking and deciding about moral and practical matters is supposedly influenced by different sorts of emotional or intuitional responses that are often not the product of rational thinking, at least upon that old model of rationality that eschews emotional import input altogether. I think that most of these studies have failed to learn properly from Damasio and rely upon a picture of separate and conflicting brain areas for emotion and cognition that merely mirrors the philosophical tradition I outlined earlier. There is thus good reason to challenge the model of neuroscience at work here on its own grounds. This has been done very effectively, I think, by Walter Glannon in his book Brain, Body and, Mi Brain, Body and Mind, Chapter 4. But I won't make that central here. Uh, many of these studies proceed by showing the strong influence uh, that emotions have on reactions to challenging moral scenarios, often fantasy ones invented by philosophers who spend a lot of their life inventing fantasies. And then to contrast these with rational reactions. Quite often, the assumption is that the rational and morally right reaction is what they call a utilitarian one. Indeed, a, som a somewhat narrow version of utilitarian thinking, as we shall explore below. Barton and Rattos, for example, state that, quote, decisions made on the basis of deontological principles usually lead to results that are not as good as the best that could be achieved, unquote. It's clear from the context that this is not merely a restatement of the difference between deontological and utilitarian theories, but an unargued preference for the latter. Other theorists, such as Joshua Green and his colleagues, declare outright that all non-utilitarian judgments in moral matters are simply errors caused by emotional reactions emanating in a specific emotion centre in the brain. It's likely that the drive to detect errors in the moral thinking of their subjects, rather than merely describing differences and giving some neural story about them, has been influenced by the work of such social scientists as Daniel Kerneman and Amos Tversky, who have fashioned distinguished careers by demonstrating the ways in which ordinary folk make errors of reasoning in much of ordinary life. They are, of course, exempt from these themselves, such as the estimate of risks or the testing of their own beliefs. I don't mean to endorse all of Kahneman and Tversky's conclusions by any means, but at least for some of their error discoveries, they have a non-contentious, mathematically robust background theory, such as probability theory, to make good the claim of error. In ethics, this is largely missing. But the calculative nature of utilitarianism may contribute to the unconscious privileging of it in the quest for exposing the moral errors of the vulgar mob and their faulty reliance on emotion. One recent study, however, by Bartels and Pizarro counters this trend, first by simply pointing out its prevalence and question-begging nature, and then by seeking to show that psychopathic personalities, who are commonly regarded as largely lacking a concern for morality, and as being defective in certain emotional capacities, such as empathy, are conspicuously more comfortable with utilitarian reasoning than with deontological. Since it's also commonly held that psychopaths have plenty of rationality in the old rationalistic sense, and since it seems to many theorists and non-theorists that morality is an activity much concerned with good and bad reasons for acting, 
then the fact that psychopaths are bad exemplars of moral agents means that the rationalist approach and perhaps utilitarianism more generally is not a good one for understanding morality or what is small r rational about it. The Bartels Pizarro study arrives at its conclusions by testing subjects against a scale for psychopathy and then testing them for answers to a battery of moral dilemmas, mostly drawn or adapted from philosophers' examples. It also checked the responses against scales for what it called Machiavellianism and, and no-meaning to life attitudes. And these also showed greater tendencies to support the utilitarian solutions to the dilemmas. Gratifying as these conclusions are to those of us who are neither psychopaths nor utilitarians, and I confidently believe that not only I but most of my audience, not all, are neither, uh, there are reasons to be sceptical about the conceptual legitimacy of the experiment, even if it's not as crude conceptually as the studies that it criticises. I shall leave aside for the moment problems about the nature of psychopathy, on which there is considerable debate within psychiatry and psychology, and mention several other conceptual crudities in the analysis. First, there is the understanding of utilitarianism, which is construed in narrow act-utilitarian terms, without any appreciation of the more complex versions of the theory, such as rule and other indirect forms of utilitarianism. Nor is there any attempt to explore or mention a distinction between utilitarianism as a theoretical justification of morality by contrast with a decision procedure for particular actions. This is a distinction that uh, utilitarians themselves often make. I don't necessarily think it works, but it's worth getting into the picture. Second, there's no appreciation of the fact that some of the moral puzzles taken from philosophers are such that many non-utilitarian theorists would give the very same answers that the so-called utilitarians give. This is a feature not only of Bartels Pizarro, but of all the neuroscience studies of so-called moral dilemmas that I have seen. One of the Bartels Pizarro dilemmas is taken without attribution straight from Bernard, the philosopher Bernard Williams' uh, Jim and the Indian story. Uh, Jim and the Indian is a story about uh, an unfortunate fellow who wanders uh, into a um, dangerous part of somewhere in South America and finds himself amongst bandits or dangerous revolutionaries and they, uh, uh, they offer him the privilege as a uh, distinguished visitor um, of uh, shooting one of the ten uh, innocent uh, Indians that they have lined up in front of them, uh, in which case they will save the other nine. <coughs> if he doesn't, then they'll kill all ten. And uh, the utilitarian answer to this is you must always do, this is the simple act utilitarian, you must always do which what will uh, save nine lives, even if it sacrifices one, and even if that means you're the one who kills uh, that one. Uh, but Williams is not a... Uh, uh, utilitarian. He is a, fan, uh, a strong opponent uh, of utilitarianism, a fierce opponent of it, and gives the same answer to the problem nonetheless as those that the study treats as utilitarians. What you, Williams uses the example to show an effect that a non-utilitarian doesn't have to be an absolutist about it. Like Mo Michael Waltz's category of dirty hands is another philosophical category, this suggests that psychologists studying moral thinking often mistakenly construe any concern for consequences in morality as utilitarian, whereas deontologists and other non-utilitarians are certainly free to consider consequences in a range of cases. 
Even in the moral dilemma examples, some deontologists, as we saw with Williams, uh, would allow that the so-called utilitarian response is morally acceptable, uh, and dirty hands theorists would allow that what they call extreme emergency uh, situations sometimes permit very great negative consequences to count in a certain way against normally deep moral, even absolute constraints. Similar things can be said of the soldier's example. This is one about leaving an injured soldier to be captured and killed when saving him, one of your own soldiers, when saving him would mean that all of the troop, including him perhaps, would be killed. And the bystander example, which is uh, also called, it was one version of the trolley problem. I suspect nearly everyone's heard of the Richard Trolley, but uh, <laughs> very, very briefly, well, if someone shakes their head, very briefly, uh, it's a story about a runaway trolley on rails, uh, which is heading towards a branch uh, in, the, in the rail system, uh, and tied to one branch is one person, and tied to the other is five people, and you're on the trolley and you can turn it one way or the other, or you're a bystander who's got a button and can turn it one way or the other, uh, and uh, what do you, or you can do nothing at all and let nature take its course. Uh, what do you do? And the idea is if you say, uh, I should turn it and kill the one to save the five, you're a utilitarian. If you say you're going to turn it to the right and kill five to save one, I'm not sure what you are. Uh, and, and, if you, and if you say, uh, I'm just going to leave it to God or I'm going to let it go, then you're a deontologist. Uh, the, uh, but, but many non-utilitarians give the same answer that the utilitarian would give in this case, and that's completely ignored by the researchers on the bystander example. Non-utilitarians like Francis Cam, if indeed there are any people like Francis Cam, give deontological reasons for supporting the supposedly utilitarian solution, but she gives extremely complex deontological reasons for rejecting the utilitarian response in the footbridge example. Footbridge example is one in which the same trolley uh, is running a mark. Maybe there's not a branch in this one, it's just going down, uh, but you can Throw a, throw a bike, you're on the bridge, the footbridge, and you grab some guy who's going by and you can save five uh, people or one person, doesn't matter much, but it'll have to be more than one, you can save two and so on. If you grab this guy and throw him in front of the trolley and it kills him, but it saves the five. That's the variation on it. Uh, so she'll go for the, uh, Francis gives uh, non-utilitarian reasons uh, for uh, switching the trolley when you're uh, on it to kill the one and save the five, but she won't throw the uh, innocent uh, bystander onto the track to kill them, and she gives a, a, a long and somewhat complex story to show why that's the best thing to do, the right thing to do. Now, it's hard to see uh, her reasons for that as somehow down to an erroneous reliance on emotion, particularly if you know Francis, whatever her brain states are doing. Similar points can be made about deontological theorists who discuss difficult cases short of dirty hands, who judge permissibly when there are a small number of deaths caused to save a much larger number of lives, but impermissibly when the large number of lives, when a large number of lives are to be sacrificed for an even larger number saved. Here I'm not defending such deontological theories and theorists, but merely pointing out the complexities that are consistently ignored or just not understood by the neuroscientists. One might also note that the loose vocabulary of moral dilemma used by all the psychological studies of moral decision-making obscures the issues in another way, namely that philosophers tend to use the term to denote those situations in which there's no right or wrong answer to the decision problem that the agent faces. 
In the examples considered by Bartels and Pizarro, different agents give different answers to the puzzling philosopher's cases, but each thinks that their answer is unequivocally right without moral remainder. Or if they don't actually think that, the experimental scenario forces them to act as if they do. For dirty hands theorists, the story they tell, whether coherent or not, is that the action is morally wrong, but nonetheless the right thing to do. For moral dilemma theorists, either choice of actions is neither right nor wrong. Morality drops out at this point. It may be thought that this qualm is too technical to insist upon, but I think the point's worth making because it not only highlights the ignorance of the neuroscientists, but also because it shows the extreme artificiality of the demand for a binary response, yes, no, permitted, not permitted, in the use of the dilemma examples. The defects of such artificiality extend beyond the considerations I've adduced so far to the likely irrelevance of such laboratory studies to the realities of moral thinking and emotion in the world in which they actually occur. Not only are the binary responses inadequate reflections of the philosophical theories they purport to serve, but as philosophers such as uh, Appiah, Berker and Glennon have recently pointed out, the scenarios considered in laboratory conditions are very unlikely to elicit the thinking and feeling that actual real-life encounters with difficult moral decisions will involve. Being asked to imagine how you would respond and why to a described emergency scenario is not the same as being in that scenario. And it's a big assumption to think, A, that the reasoning and feeling that occurs in the former will be the same as that in the latter, and B, that the brain states involved in both will be the same. There are many reasons to doubt such identities. One is that the real-life scenarios will very probably differ in myriad detail from its imagined twin, thus giving signs to options deliberately excluded from the twin. Another is that my engagement with the real case confronts me with actual people and circumstances and not descriptions or even visual presentations in a laboratory. There's little reason to think that my responses to and guesses about the latter will match my responses and thoughts about the former. It does, however, further, further highlight the lack of philosophical sophistication and intellectual depth involved in the way neuroscientists often resort to philosophical examples and theories. Returning to Bartels and Pizarro, I think that in spite of uh, some of their work involving certain of the confusions discussed above, a number of their points survive. No doubt they've drawn upon philosophical positions too crudely and inaccurately, and have been ignorant of much of the complexity in philosophical debates. But at least they've shown that a narrow version of utilitarianism uh, or consequentialism that is at least a widespread tendency of thought, influential upon many in the wider community as well as intellectuals, should not be uncritically assumed by experimenters properly to characterise genuine moral thinking and deciding. Moreover, their experiments, though sharing some of the problematic artificiality complained of, do strongly suggest that the casting of all emotion involved in moral thinking and deciding as error-inducing, by the contrast with a certain model of rationality, is ill-considered. The authors are also clear that they do not mean to imply that all people who have thought their way through to an endorsement of utilitarianism as a philosophical theory of morality are thereby exhibiting, or prone to, psychopathy. Furthermore, when their research is purged of misleading assumptions, it does suggest ways that the concentration on an emotionally detached model of reason may itself produce errors, since it can obscure or even omit altogether the possibly benign role of emotion in reasoning and thinking about moral questions, and thereby fail to acknowledge the dangers adherence to that model poses for, for, for a fulfilling life. Now, I've got a section on 
uh, meta-ethics and the relevance of it to what I've been talking about. I'm going to leave that out because we don't have a huge amount of time. I turn now to the nature of emotions. Uh, Mike, you couldn't get me a glass of water or something. Oh. The term emotion is something of a portmanteau word, gathering in as it does a wide range of phenomena that are sometimes as different as they are similar. Rather than attempt a tight definition, I want to deal with some significant examples that exhibit features uh, that make the divide I began with seem less plausible. I will, however, begin by mentioning some features that are common to many of the things we call emotions. The first, noted long ago by William James, is that they have more or less strong connections with bodily reactions and feelings. Anger is a prime candidate for emotion, and angry people typically become heated and their faces flushed. They experience some, strong, uh, some level of strong desire to behave aggressively to the object of the anger, and this is difficult to inhibit. Fear, another prime candidate, tends to produce apprehensive reactions such as sweating or rapid breathing or a feeling of coldness. Of course, there's a great range of individual variation in these associated feelings and reactions, but there would be something very strange about anger or fear that produced none of these. The second point, however, is that an emotion is more than the associated feelings and so on. Subjectivists and emotivists in metaethics like to describe their views as non-cognitivist with the implication that emotion is as raw as its associated feelings and has nothing to do with the intellect. That seems doubtful in several directions. For one thing, there are many emotions that have cognitive structure related to what is appropriate for them to be directed at. Fear must typically be governed by the thought of an object that's considered dangerous to the perceiver or agent. There are no doubt nameless fears or a general fear of the world, but a core fear, uh, but at core, fear is governed by a fairly specific thought that concerns danger to the agent or to those she's closely identified with. Where the thought of danger is totally misplaced, it's right to call it irrational, even though in terms of its associated feelings and bodily effects, it's still a sort of fear. Similarly, anger is typically geared towards slights or injuries related to the agent's concerns or well-being. It makes no sense to describe someone as angry at being well-treated or at the successes of a close friend unless the agent thinks the good treatment is a piece of condescension towards her or that the friend's successes have somehow been achieved at some resented cost to the agent herself. Again, gratitude cannot coherently be felt at something that can in no way be understood as a gift. It's no accident or mere social preference that nameless fear or objectless anger are pathological. It's facts like these about emotions that have led some thinkers to virtually assimilate emotions to beliefs or judgments. Robert Solomon, following Jean-Paul Sartre to some extent, is preeminent in this venture and those like him are often called cognitivists about emotions. The extreme cognitivist account fails, I think, to give enough weight to the accompanying feelings and sensations of many emotions and also tends to assimilate emotions too closely to beliefs. The latter point is important because the intentionality aspect of emotions is more akin to that of perception, so that, as with perception, it's possible for an emotion to represent a state of affairs that the agent does not believe to, to obtain. So just as an agent can see an object as elliptical but correctly believe that it's round. So she can be afraid of a spider, thus emotionally representing it as dangerous, when she may believe on good evidence that it's harmless. We could, however, use the term judgment broadly enough to include such representational content 
even where the agent doesn't <coughs> endorse what is represented as a belief of hers. In that sense, emotions, or at least many of the central emotions, involve judgment. But quite apart from the agent's thought or judgment about the object or the way it appears in emotion to him, there remains the question whether the emotion really fits its object. The person who is afraid of something that is not really fearful or dangerous, as someone who is afraid of a toy spider, even when they know it is a toy, has been led astray by the emotion just as someone who misperceives in dim light their own reflection in a mirror for another person has been led astray by their senses. Similarly, someone who's indignant about a wrong that isn't really a wrong has an emotion which fails to match its object, even if the emotion is triggered by a relevant thought, namely that of a wrong. Emotions are also related to the way the world is in a forward-looking fashion, in that they can prompt a typical range of object-related reactions, such as flight from the danger feared, or more positive ways of eliminating it. Admiration prompts emulation, indignation prompts attempts to remedy the wrong or injustice, and jealousy prompts the sort of actions that led to Othello's disastrous decline. A further thing about emotions that invoke a cognitive or intellectual dimension is the way they can be discordant or harmonious with each other and with the agent's quest for a fulfilling life. One does not have to have a rigid conception of what such a life must be like, but there are limits to what it can be. Emotions like envy, jealousy, spitefulness, and with some qualifications, hatred, carry with them disturbances of emotional balance that interfere with such emotional dispositions as kindliness, love, admiration, gratitude, indignation, and others. At this point, it's likely that someone, or many some, will, in, will object that I'm no longer talking of a cognitive or intellectual dimension, since I am now in the area of choosing how to live, and that can have nothing to do with what can be called reason. Two of David Hume's famous comments come to mind in this connection. The first is that reason is nothing more than an instrument of the emotions, or in his words, that reason is and ought only to be a slave of the passions. And the second is his remark that it's not contrary to reason to prefer the destruction of the whole world to the scratching of my finger. Nor, as he asserts on the other hand, it is not contrary to reason for me to choose my total ruin to prevent the least uneasiness of an Indian or person wholly unknown to me. Hume's view of reason is part of a project to debunk the Platonic and other rationalist views of reason uh, as a requirement for dominating and controlling the passions. His inversion of the tradition has the virtue of not downgrading the role of passion or emotion in human life, indeed of emphasising its supreme importance to moral practice and evaluation. But it does so at the cost of so denaturing reason as to restrict it to the mere comparison of ideas, as he puts it. Indeed, Hume's emphatic ought only to be cannot itself be a requirement of the reasons and facts he has adduced on behalf of his famous dictum, and but must be an outcome of an appeal to passion. A further consequence of the position is that there's no rational imperative to choose true beliefs over false, because the alternative choice of false beliefs over true is as little contrary to reason as the choice of my own total ruin to prevent the least, least uneasiness of a complete stranger. <coughs> of course, many philosophers, including Hume, think that one cannot choose to believe what anyway, but this seems to me simply another dogma of empiricism. I won't argue for that here, since we can certainly choose to seek truth rather than falsehood, and the consequence that there's nothing to choose rationally between such a policy and the policy of seeking falsehood is equally disturbing and counterintuitive. Hume famously remarked that, generally speaking, the errors in religion are dangerous, 
those in philosophy only ridiculous. Perhaps these consequences of his own ingenious philosophy testify to the truth of at least the second part of his dictum. It's often noticed that terms such as rational, rationality, and for that matter true and false, are appraisals. But this doesn't advance matters very far, since so is the phrase, that's a fact. Admittedly, the terms rational and rationality are perhaps more commonly subject, subject to varied uses and abuses than fact, true or false, but any attempt to live a good life must at least involve a modicum of attention to having good reasons for what we do and how we plan our lives, however minimally we do that planning. If we gear rationality to living rather than or as well as theorising, we must pay particular attention to the rational dimensions of emotion. Indeed, there's good reason to think of trusting our emotions in the same sort of way that we trust our other resources for dealing with the world we live in. What we usually consider our strictly cognitive resources for recognising and exploring the world, for example, sensory perception, memory, introspection, inferential capacities and testimony, can all lead us astray. Uh, yeah, can all lead us astray, as can our emotions. But we need to have a general trust in these cognitive resources, not only to survive, but to have any prospect of living well. Epistemologists have increasingly realised that attempts to somehow prove the reliability of such cognitive resources without circularity are doomed to failure. This, of course, is the crucial move in sceptical arguments. But assuming that scepticism has little to tell us about how to live, and here I sidestep certain ways in which the ancient sceptics did indeed think they'd provided lessons for living, what the circularity problem helps to show is that there is a certain trust in our cognitive faculties that's central to coping with ourselves and the environment, whatever ontological status that environment ultimately has. I want to argue that the same point applies caterus paribus to our emotional capacities. Linda Zagzebsi has recently argued that a trust in our cognitive resources for understanding and coping with the world is not only the upshot of the futility of trying to prove their reliability, the circularity problem, but is connected to a basic form of self-trust. Her point is that self-consciousness involves a natural inclination to seek truth, to pose questions and seek correct answers to them, <coughs> even if this natural desire is often at work pre-reflectively. The workings of this desire, at both the pre-reflective and reflective levels, requires also a natural desire to remove what she calls dissonance, both between beliefs or between beliefs and desires, or feelings or actions. The existence of such dissonance and the need to remove it is what leads often enough to what she calls conscientious self-reflection which is a key notion in her concept of rationality. It's by conscientious self-reflection that the self seeks to resolve dissonance, whether this involves beliefs, actions, desires or emotions, or some combination of them. But underpinning the operation of such self-reflection is basic trust in the self and the self's natural resources for seeking truth. Rationality consists for her in doing a better job of what we naturally do. So independently of a problem about the circularity of any attempt to justify our basic faculties, we still have a case for self-trust. Put differently, her argument is that trust in our basic cognitive faculties is not a default position waiting upon the failure of independent non-circular attempts to justify them, but is basic to anything we can understand as a rational enterprise. Although a principal concern she has is with our cognitive capacities in the rather narrow sense common in traditional epistemology, she thinks that her argument applies to our desires and emotions as well. As she puts it, I have the same general grounds for trust in my emotion and dispositions as I have for trust in my epistemic faculties. She acknowledges the cognitive dimensions of emotion already discussed above, and her argument from self-trust is intended to apply to them as well. 
Of course, that doesn't mean that we blindly trust all our emotional reactions in every situation in which they occur, nor do we blindly trust every piece of mental arithmetic, every visual inspection, every memory, or every piece of testimony. What we eventually trust is the outcome of the process of conscientious reflection that applies to resolve dissonance in both the epistemic and emotional cases, and the desire cases, which I won't discuss here. The basic question to which trust in emotions is addressed is whether they genuinely fit their objects. But there are other questions about them up for adjudication, such as whether some emotions are oriented to the wrong reactions to their objects. This concerns the issue of what patterns of action an emotion prompts, as I put it earlier. Emotions can be cognitively apt for certain objects, but produce a distorted picture of the place of those objects in the world we inhabit. Consider envy. The appropriate object for envy is very roughly the successes or achievements of another. Except for very unusual circumstances, we cannot envy failure in another, nor can we envy a rock, though we might envy a neighbour who has secured a particularly fine-looking stone for a centrepiece of her garden. But of course, the success of another is also the proper object of the emotion of admiration. Comparing the achievements or high qualities of another person with our own is integral to the generation of both envy and admiration, but the reactions of both emotions go in opposite directions. Admiration leads naturally to emulation in some degree, or at least to satisfaction that a fellow human being can achieve so well, and this affords a, cert a certain encouragement to oneself. Envy, on the other hand, leads to disparagement of the other's achievements, and often it stimulates thoughts that the other's success or honour is undeserved. When we say to someone, you're just envious of Smith, we mean to highlight the fact that the emotion of envy has distorted the agent's perception and understanding of the achievements of the envied person. Typically, that's what envy does. It misrepresents aspects of the world to the agent. If one's disparaging thoughts were actually true, that is, if the person's successes were not due to their personal excellences or relevant hard work, but to toadying or bribery or something similar, then one's reactions would not be envy, but rather a healthy emotion such as indignation or something of that sort. Of course, this is just a sketch of the territory of rationality and the emotions, and there are many more details to fill and more shades of moderating and moderating touches to be made. One point that immediately arises is that the question whether trust in self that underpins trust in the emotions can reach as far as it does in the case of trust in the traditionally epistemic faculties. I'm not sure of the answer to this question, but I will briefly explore what seems to me at issue. The question has at least two dimensions. The first concerns the diversity of emotions in two respects. A, it's claimed, for instance, that some emotions apparently central to morality are more local than we like to think. This has been argued with respect to what seems an emotion central to morality, namely guilt. There are other cultures, so it's said, that experience shame but have no emotion of guilt, or treat shame as central to ethical behaviour in a way that's more significant than the modern concentration on guilt. Bernard Williams is a notable philosopher who has argued this sort of case by comparison of the ancient Greek outlook on the best way to live with that of post-classical Western cultures. I'm not entirely persuaded by his argument, but it has some plausibility and needs discussion. It must, however, be borne in mind that arguments from cultural variation have their pitfalls. The fact that some cultures have had no place for natural science as we understand it, or for historical study as we understand it, is no objection to the rationality of those endeavours, even if we might learn something from what they had in their place. B. Individuals may vary more in their emotional capacities than in their epistemic. Individuals do, however, vary considerably in their intellectual and perceptual capacities, and any given individual does so throughout their life, as I can personally testify about my ageing memory 
and my increasingly poor hearing, something you should bear in mind in the discussion. But maybe the variations are more significant with emotions, the, capa the capacity to be amused, the emotion of sympathy on which Hume built his account of morality, the emotion of anger, the sense of the ridiculous, the emotion of fear, all these seem to vary a great deal amongst people who appear otherwise healthy enough. C. It seems plausible, uh, possible that emotions may miss the mark, that is, fail to match their appropriate objects, more frequently than the epistemic faculties. At least some of our emotions may be less stable than the faculties of sight, hearing, inferring, and so on. The emotion of disgust, uh, for example, is contentious in many debates about bioethical innovations, precisely because we have come to see that cultural conditioning around this emotion has been prominent in creating, uh, or at least sustaining, evils such as racism and homophobia. Disgust may nonetheless be morally and rationally important rather than a mere visceral reaction, since feeling disgust at pictures of torture or vivid accounts of war crimes or sex slavery can help change radically for the better the way people think about social and political policies. Nor should the complexities of disgust and other emotions be ignored by imagining that it's always visceral and unmediated by context and thought. In the very advanced art gallery in Hobart, Tasmania, called the Museum of Old and New Art, MONA, there is an installation called a poo machine, which mimics the operation of the human digestive system from ingestion of food to its excretion. It's a very large machine. My grandson Samuel, then a rather sophisticated youngster of nine years, was watching this phenomenon with great interest. And when the machine deposited a lifelike excretion, a lady standing near him cried out, that's disgusting. To this, Samuel replied sternly, no, it's not. We do that and we're not disgusting. No doubt reactions might have been different had they both beheld a visitor to the Mona, divest the relevant clothing and mimic the machine. So context, circumstances and mindset feed into the generation of disgust in a way that makes the picture of it as a straightforward spurt of emotion misleading. Perhaps some emotions can go astray more easily than others, contrast disgust with sympathy, but we should not lose sight of the fact that the traditional epistemic faculties have their pathologies as well. Vision is a broadly reliable way of finding out about our environment, but it's subject to many misjudgments as the evidence of skillful magician tricks and common optical illusions show. I've hoped to chart some of the pitfalls and the tendency to think of our emotional life as detached from, hostile to, or in need of rigorous control by reason, and suggest that too much of the neuropsychological investigation of the role of reason and emotion in ethics attends too little to the subtleties and complexities of both philosophical ethics and psychological reality. There are two lessons for the enhancement project in this. The first is that the findings of those psychological come neurological investigations that often go under the label of neuroscience should be used with caution. The second is that various proposals to enhance either our reasonings or our emotions need to attend to the often intimate connections between reason and emotion, since enhancing what we imagine to be one separate category or subcategory is very likely to have serious implications for the other. I'll conclude uh, with a comment of Wittgenstein's in the second part of the uh, Philosophical investiga Investigations. Wittgenstein says, in psychology, there are experimental methods and conceptual confusion. The existence of the experimental method makes us think we have the means of solving problems which trouble us, though problem and method pass one another by. I hasten to say that I, don't, that I don't think this is true of all psychology or neuroscience, but it's sufficiently accurate to require 
close attention to the claims about morality, reason and emotion that emerge from that literature. Thank you.